if you live an offended lifestyle, not just if you get offended once, right? But if you live an offended lifestyle, that comes from a mentality of entitlement. If you live an offended lifestyle, I have to tell you by the authority of Scripture that you're not in Christ and you need to repent and believe the gospel. Take the life that Christ offers. Be liberated from this offended lifestyle that the world so adamantly places on us. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is addressing the division in the church, the immaturity of the church, and his goal is to bring maturity to the congregation. And it is maturity, doctrinal maturity, that breeds unity within the body of Christ. Uh, It is the more we know Christ, the more unified we are. And that's the message Paul has for the church at Corinth. In chapter 5, Paul got it church discipline and excommunication. He says, yes, judge, judge within the body when it comes to issues of sin, right? If someone is living in sin, the congregation has a responsibility to come alongside that person and say, hey, you're living in sin, which means you're not bearing the fruit of repentance, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and to say, we need to stop doing this now. And if there is no repentance, the indication is that person doesn't have the Holy Spirit, that person is not regenerate, and therefore is excommunicated from the body of believers, indicating you're not really in Christ, but we would like you to be. And then the body treats that person like an outsider. And there in chapter 5, Paul said, and you treat outsiders this way. Don't judge them like you judge within the church. And so treating someone like an outsider after having excommunicated them means showing them the grace of God again and sharing the gospel with them again. In chapter 6, Paul gets at something quite different. He gets at personal offenses. And he treats personal offenses different than he treats a church member who is living in Sin. So we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 this morning. I think I can make it through 11 whole verses. <laughs> the answer is yes. We just wonder how much time it's going to take, right? Okay. <laughs> and I have a watch with no hands. So, mm, sorry about it. <laughs> Not really sorry. All right, let's go. Let's move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll read verses 1 through 11, and then we will walk through this verse by verse, lectio continua like we normally do. Chapter 6, verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is... Judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? 
So, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Lord, bless the reading of your word. I I think that moms probably model what it means to live like a Christian when it comes to their relationship with their children. And since it's Mother's Day, I'll make this illustration. Right? So a mom has a child and guaranteed there will come a time when the child absolutely offends the mom. Okay, Could be anything. Talking back to the mom, just being flat out obstinate, a disobedient child, and the mom has no choice, because if you exile your kid... <laughs> we just don't talk. We don't even, like, that's... No, that's not even not even up here in our minds. Like, no mom would exile the child, for, especially for a personal offense. Instead, the mom, like, no matter how offended she is, eventually is like, child, go to your room. I love you. You're still here. I'm going to discipline you. Go... <laughs> go to your room for a little bit. Uh, Mom needs a break, but you're not exiled. I still love you. I'll get over this offense, and I'll let you out of your room. Okay. So I think moms model what it means to live like a Christian when it comes to personal offenses. And I think about my own life, and there are things in my life that used to drive me crazy. So, one of my pet peeves was once when people put thumbtacks in sheetrock in a wall. <laughs> and I'm like, why make a hole that you don't have to make? And, and I would like, I would complain about it quite a bit. Yeah, you remember this? Like, we went into one church. This is the first church I pastored, and we went into the church. <laughs> This was so sinful on my part, but I'm just going to brag in the Lord's work in my life, okay? <laughs> so we walked into this church, and uh, the carpet was like that lime green color. You know what I'm talking about? Like through the hallway, that lime green color. And we walked through the hallways, and like the wall was covered in pictures drawn on 8.5 by 11 printer paper. And the wall was just covered with that. Every single picture was put in with a 
thumbtack. And I could just picture some of the little kids in the church like, oh, thumbtacks. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And the reason I could picture little kids doing that is because that was the first thought that came to my mind. <laughs> you know, that's, that's my... My, can I say childlikeness or is that childishness? I don't know. But that drove me crazy and I complained about it for a week and I got all angry, pulled the thumbtacks out and pulled the papers down. And the longer I have lived with Christ, the more I realize that I things don't bother me, especially small stuff like that. How trivial is that, right? But even like big stuff, it, it doesn't bother me like that anymore because I am... In Christ, um, Christ, for some reason, like teaches, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and then He actually brings us into into that. Um, these personal offenses that we see in chapter six, the first eleven verses, these are these are personal offenses that the offended party, we'll call them the plaintiff, since Paul's getting a, you know a court case here, they can't get over this offense, and that they need it dealt with right now. Um, and if this thing isn't dealt with, then there is going to be hell to pay, and I'm bringing the hell, right? Um, and we all know people who live, and I'm going to call it offended lives. Now, we all get offended from time to time, but this text is getting at people who are offended and live in reaction to whatever the offense is, whether it is, whether they are justified in being offended or or not, Paul doesn't tell us. Verse 1 here, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, when he is offended and needs to address a problem, right? Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And Paul asks this question. And you notice in this passage, he's not addressing the whole church. Okay, he says, "Does any one of you who what who are offended, who have a case against his neighbor?" He, he is talking to offended people within the context of the local church. So everything here, verses one through eleven, this is this is directed like a sniper rifle at those who live offended lives within the body of Christ, within the body of believers, within the local church in Corinth. And in verse 2, after asking this question in verse 2, he he asks another question which reveals something about the nature of the church. He's like, I'm going to take this opportunity, I'm going to teach you something about the nature of, of the church, the nature of the local body of believers. Or, do you not know that the saints will judge the world. Now there's an interesting detail. And he, he says it like matter of fact. Um, brothers and sisters, do you see yourself as judges of the world? Well, be careful with that, okay? And this is future tense. Here, the first, the first question. Do you not know that you will judge the world? But then the second question, he, he moves it to present tense. Like this is a present tense reality. If the world is judged by you. So this isn't only future. It'll be a future judgment where the church judges the world. Then he moves it to present tense. Like, if, if you do judge the world, like this is happening now. If you do judge the world, if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Well, first... 
we notice that Paul is referring to the church body as a more beneficial authority, authority of judgment than the law courts of the world. And part of the reason Paul has for that, his reasoning here, is the church has the Holy Spirit. And the church is the under the authority of Christ, who is just. And the church, the body, has been regenerated as a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, so it won't be as cold as the world. And the church, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, will actually be able to measure and weigh cases in a way that is more just than the judicial systems of the world. Like Paul really is drawing a distinction here between the the kingdoms of the world, the nations of the world, and the the systems of judgment that the world has, the, the judicial systems of the world in any nation, and the church as just judge. Now, we, we heard before the irony of our age is people assume that the church isn't to be judgmental. Right? And in chapter 5, Paul says, judge one another. That's how sanctification works. Judge one another when it comes to matters of sin. And here he's saying the church actually judges the world. Now, in chapter 5, he said, don't judge the sin of individuals who are part of the world. And so here he can't turn around and say, or he's not turning around and saying, yes, judge every single individual in the world. That's not what he's saying here. He is saying that the church is, is really a judge over the systems of the world, speaking reason into the, the systems of the world. The, the church is to inform politics, not make politics its God, but to inform the politics of the day and the judgment of the day and to speak the word of God and the gospel into the systems of the world and and really show reasonably and gently and respectfully, right? There's no reason a pastor should just scream at the world. That doesn't accomplish anything, right? Reasonably, gently, respectfully address the problems in the world according to Scripture and reveal the foolishness of the world's reasoning like this is a position Paul assumes here that the church takes this position and if the church does this are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts now Paul's view of the kingdom of heaven comes comes through in this in this verse and that Paul doesn't believe that the authority of the church is waiting for some future time. We will judge, but we're also judging the world. And he places the kingdom of heaven in authority over the kingdoms of this world and identifies the church as the manifestation of the kingdom of heaven here on this earth, exercising the judgment of Christ and speaking reason into the world. This is, this is, that's Paul's eschatology here. That is his view of the kingdom of heaven and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And the church is more beneficial than the ju- judicial systems of our of our day. And this is the, the nature of the church. And, and this plays into how we treat personal offenses within the church. Like, are you not competent to really deal with personal offenses? If you're going to judge the world, are you really not competent to, to deal with personal offenses within the body of believers? Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? Ah, something else about the church about the saints about christians 
what does it mean <laughs> that we will judge angels? Now, the word angel here is angelos. It just means messenger. And anytime we see the word messenger in the New Testament, we have to ask what question. Well, is Paul talking about a heavenly messenger or is he talking about an earthly messenger? Is he talking about a person who brings a message or is he talking about a heavenly being who brings a message? Look at the second half of verse 3. How much more the matters of this life. So Paul is juxtaposing there. We use context clues, right? To figure out which type of angel Paul is referring to. How much more the matters of this life. So he's juxtaposing the angels. The fact that the church will judge angels with the matters of this life. So here Paul is talking about heavenly angels like if you're going to judge matters of the heavens how much more the matters of this life that's what's going on in context here which actually doesn't make this any easier to interpret okay because just reading it plainly that's what it seemed like anyway but it's important to do the hard work of exegesis and it is unlikely that we will in judicial manner since that's what Paul means here by the word judge he doesn't just mean judge in the sense of managing something and discerning something this is judicial judgment by the church the, the, the angels the, the heavenly angels it's, it's unlikely here that he means angels of light since they are without sin right and these are matters of sin he is talking about that are under the judgment of the church instead these are going to probably be most likely be sinful angels fallen angels Paul is referring to here do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the matters of this life? Here he sets the church again on, a, on just a higher plane than the plane of the world. Uh, worldly people will not judge worldly governments. The church will. That is the church's responsibility in the world even today. It's in the present tense. Uh, the church, worldly people will not judge heavenly angels the church will this is something that the church will do and this one is just future tense if christ through sanctification and through the through the rending of our hearts unto him is preparing us to be just judges in the world today and to justly judge angels how much more should we be able to judge the matters of this life with wisdom with discernment to, to justly, to rightly deal with the personal offenses that are present within the congregation, within the body of believers. Verse 4, So, if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account to the church? Let me put this another way. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Why take your little, your little quarrels, your little personal offenses to worldly courtrooms when you're part of a church body that serves this purpose to, to judge personal offenses and to, and, to, and to have mediation within the body of, of believers? Like this is to be taking place in the local church. People have this idea of the local church that it's, it's an event you go to on Sunday morning, right? And then you go and you live your lives. The, the thing about the church, especially 
especially as Paul presents the church body here, the local church body in 1 Corinthians, the local church really is here to live all of life together and to deal with even personal offenses together. So if I am personally offended and I don't come to at least the elders of the church if I'm personally offended and I don't do that and say, hey, can, can you help me deal with this? And then actually take the advice given by mature and godly Christians. We're not going to find anything better in the world. The church is equipped to handle this. The world is not. The world does not have the Holy Spirit. And, and the world does not have the law of God as its authority. It's, it's willful authority. I should put it that way. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Wait a minute, before, before we get here, in chapter 5, when Paul is talking about church discipline and excommunication, he's not speaking it to the church's shame. He's not speaking it to the sinner's shame. He's speaking it for the good of the one who is to be excommunicated for the one living in Pornea. He's speaking it to, to that person's goods. So that person might realize, hey, I'm, I'm not in Christ and I need to repent and believe the gospel. And for the church's good, chapter 5, church discipline is, is up building. And then Paul gets here speaking to offended people in the church body. And all of a sudden he's speaking to their shame not to build them up, but just to just to, sh- to shame them. So there's a place for that. Y'all, this is not easy to preach. Amen. He's speaking it to their shame. And not the whole church's shame. Remember, this passage is directed particularly at offended people living within the body of believers. Is it so that there are not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Instead of taking this before unbelievers, wouldn't you rather be wronged? Wouldn't you rather just practice forgiveness? Wouldn't you rather just be defrauded? Uh, This is the unity of the local church at stake here. This is the maturity of the body of believers at stake here. And, And Christ has taught you to live such a life where you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And... Christ has taught that as far as it depends on us, we live at peace with all people. Um, It is good to know that when we are in Christ, when our hearts are regenerated and we we are people full of the Holy Spirit, that He actually liberates us from offendedness such that we can actually forgive others. Isn't that cool? I mean, yet, you think about stereotypical Christianity, it's a... 
I hate the image that's placed on Christians, don't you? And it's an image that the world places on Christians through television and and stuff. But if we are really in Christ, there is not a whole lot that just lights us up. There's not a whole lot that just gets us angry. We are liberated from living offended lives. And yet the way so many Christians seem to use social media only to complain and complain and complain about everything means that somehow people who profess to be Christians are trapped in their offendedness when this is something that Christ frees us from by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we, we care more about what offends us than we do about what offends God and instead of speaking reasonably into the current cultural environment, all we're doing is screaming about what has offended us and the gospel is lost in that. And we are no longer concerned about the glory of God, but the exaltation of of self. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? The world teaches that we must make everything right. Restitution. We must pay recompense. That there must be racial justice in that way. And that's how the world defines racial justice now. Let somebody get ahead because of the color of their skin, right? Give somebody a head start because they're entitled to that, because of centuries of oppression. And the message of the Bible is exactly opposite. I think filled with more grace and with more mercy and a higher higher tendency toward equality, which is what we really need. Instead, the Bible says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? And notice here, he doesn't say, if you are offended by someone else within the local body of believers. He's talking about offended people within the body of believers. And he just lays it out there in in a very general sense. And Paul writes, if... If you have a case against your neighbor, which could refer to people in the church, it could also refer to one's countrymen. Like, if you have a case there, wouldn't you rather be wronged? Wouldn't you rather be defrauded? This goes outside now the bounds of the local church walls and the local church families. Like, if I am offended by anyone, why not rather be wronged and defrauded? Why not rather show grace? Why not rather exhibit the mercy of God and speak reasonably, gently, respectfully into whatever I see, the systems that I see in the world, and, and compare that to the text of Scripture? But if somebody is, has personally offended me, why, why does that bother me? If I am addressing sin, fine, but sin is not the same as personal offense. In fact, I can look back on my own life and see many ways in which I have been personally offended and somebody hasn't sinned at all. In fact, most instances when I have been offended, it's because somebody cared enough to tell me what was wrong in my life and that offended me. And I needed to be offended so that I could grow, right? And the more we are sanctified, the less stuff just offends us. 
because we are more concerned about the things God is concerned about than our own preferences or our own image or our own reputation or our own identity or what have you. In Matthew chapter 18, it's the famous church discipline chapter of the entire Bible, right? Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus Christ instructed us on, on, on the method of church discipline. And you notice, even in Matthew chapter 18, when Christ is talking about church discipline, it parallels chapters 5 and 6 here really well. When Christ is talking about church discipline in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, it's, it's church discipline in response to a brother who is a stumbling block, someone who is living in sin. And the church discipline there being practiced is against someone who is constantly offended and therefore a stumbling block to other believers. And then right after Christ talks about church discipline, he gets to verses 21 through 35. And Peter, uh, you wouldn't be able to guess this, right? Peter misunderstood what Jesus said. And Peter asked a question. Well, shouldn't I forgive my brother seven times? (laughs) What if I forgive my brother seven times? Isn't that enough? And then the church discipline you're talking about, Jesus? And but, but Peter's talking about personal offense rather than some a brother living in sin and needed to be raised out of that for his good. So I think sometimes our human brains get us doing this, right? We confuse sin with personal offense and they're not the same thing. So first off, Jesus says if somebody is living in sin, discipline is the answer for their good and for the good of the body of believers. That's Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. And then after that, in verses 21 through 35, Jesus teaches about personal offense and says not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. They're indicating that there is to be unconditional forgiveness for personal offenses. So there is sin, which comes under church discipline, and there are personal offenses which are forgiven unconditionally. And it's done, never to be brought to mind again. That's Christ's teaching. That's the same thing Paul is getting at here. And then in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, this, it's, it's, the early church must not have had a problem with this at all, because it's in so many places in the New Testament. <laughs> James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures, your desires? that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You owe You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? There Paul says it, uh, not Paul, James, writes that those who live this sort of offended lifestyle, concerned about their own pleasures, their own desires, own preferences, own viewpoints, and this wage war within their members, and and it comes out and it it explodes onto other believers within within the congregation, causing conflict and quarrel and, and drama and church splits and whatever, right? 
And he straight up calls the offended party, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world, living an offended life, is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Y'all, this is a salvation issue. When Christ saves us and sanctifies us and comes into our hearts, He he makes us content people rather than offended people because He is sovereign. And we, we believe that He works all things together. And we come to consider others to be more important than us and strive to, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with all people. And here James says, look, if that is your lifestyle, a lifestyle of offendedness, you are an enemy of God. This is a salvation issue. You are not in Christ. You do not have eternal life. You are an enemy of God. The fruit of repentance is contentment. non offendedness contentment equals the freedom the liberty from the oppression of our own offendedness that is the way of the world that is the way of death and you've experienced this because I'm sure there, in, in your past you've been just as offended as I was right before Christ uh, did this amazing work and, and continues to do this amazing work. Like, when we are offended, that's like death. And we live in that. That's what it is. In fact, um, uh, being offended is to be defeated. Like Paul writes here, being offended leads to bitterness. And resentment and hatred, and it leads to our pushing others away, and it leads to our hurting others. When we live offended lives, that's the outcome. On the other hand, if we live content lives, this is the opposite of being offended, is being content, right? If we live content lives, we are victorious, and the victory of Christ shines through our our lives and what we do and how we treat others. And, And to be content is to have joy and to accept others, to be accepting of others, to practice unconditional forgiveness, to have real, true, sacrificial love for other people, to to draw others to ourselves rather than push them away and and to see others healed by our presence and by our investment in them. That's what contentment brings. That's only possible with the power of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen naturally. We see how the world is enraged right now. Not so the church. This is a salvation issue. The world lives in its offenses well the world can have those offenses I choose Christ I choose Christ verse 8 1 Corinthians chapter 6 on the contrary 
you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So, people are concerned about being wronged and defrauded. They are offended. You did something against me. And that needs to be set right. And because of the attitude they take, which is this is the pugnacious attitude, right? Always looking for an enemy, always ready for a fight, always concerned about what others have done against them. He says, because of the attitude you take, you who are so offended, you you who are so concerned about yourselves being wronged and defrauded, because of the attitude you take in reaction to, to whatever has offended you, that actually causes you to wrong and defraud others because of the way you treat them. You do this even to your brethren within, within the church, and this is wrong. Here we learn that offended people offend people. Just like hurt people hurt people. (laughs) Offended people offend people. If If we look for enemies, we will find them. Right? If we look for enemies, we will find them. We will make them if there aren't any around to be had. Right? Paul continues. Or do you not know? Paul makes this a salvation issue too, y'all. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here connecting the offendedness of the plaintiffs to the unrighteousness that actually means someone will not inherit the kingdom of God. Y'all, this this is painful because there are people I love who profess to be Christians who are caught in this, and Paul says, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. They're not, they're not really Christians because they, they wouldn't be able to act that way if they were actually in Christ and were regenerate and, and had the presence of the Holy Spirit residing within them. Do not be deceived, he continues, neither fornicators. And just like he did in chapter 5, he takes this and he expands it. Okay? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of of God. Let's walk through these one by one so we understand exactly what Paul is saying. Neither fornicators. This is the word porneia. This is the sin that he was getting at in chapter 5. Those who are given over to porneia. Who who idolatrize their sexuality, their orientation, their identity. Those who are trapped in the lifestyle of looking at things they shouldn't. The Holy Spirit brings us out of that. Everybody takes a misstep, right? It's talking about a lifestyle. It's fornicators, not those who do something one time. It's like those who are trapped in this. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, those who practice porneia as a lifestyle, nor idolaters, those who worship graven images or false gods, nor adulterers, those who, those who desire a someone relationally, sexually, that they do not have. Adulterers, those who lust nor 
effeminate. Now this is a difficult one in our current cultural context, isn't it? Effeminate is a term here that is a sin unique to men. That can be applied to women being too soft too, but this is the, the softening of manhood. The softening of masculinity. Which our current culture encourages. The softening of masculinity. But it's apparent Paul believes that men should be men and act like men and not be indistinguishable from women, effeminate. For a man to be effeminate is against God. Now, we don't, we don't confuse masculinity with bravado. Right? Those are two different things. But there's a very real biblical masculinity that men should be. There's a certain shrewdness that comes with manhood. That the Bible encourages, not into sin, but the Bible encourages this. Right? And that's why men and women are designed to complement each other. And it is why God has certain roles for men that He does not have for women. And it is why God has certain roles for women He does not have for men. Because he has designed two sexes, two genders for his purposes. And then Paul is saying here, in a Roman culture, they dealt with this too. That's why Paul addresses it. This isn't a new thing. Like, the effeminate are living in sin before God, according to his standard, right? And if that is your lifestyle, if that is what you are concerned about, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, according to Paul. This is definitely not an easy passage to preach this morning. Nor homosexuals, those who live in relationship with the same sex. That's what the word here means. And he mentions that alongside porneia. Like this is part of porneia, but it's so important. Paul mentions that too, as well. Nor thieves, those who steal from others. And this doesn't only refer to those who break into somebody's household and steal their belongings. This refers to people who take advantage of others economically. This refers to people who keep for themselves like the rich young men in the Gospels. Who keep for themselves rather than sharing with the poor. This word refers to all of that. Those it's not take take what is legal for you to take that's how the world operates right get all you can that is not god's economy use what you need steward what god gives you don't take from others in any sense of the word but those who are thieves they are interested in sordid gain greedy nor the covetous this falls into that category too right that, but this gets at desire rather than just action. If my desire is to always have what other people have, what I see, oh, that would, mm, what a nice, this is where I fall into it, right? what a nice rifle. Oh, that would be so nice to have. 
right? We covet really easily. We can covet positions and we can covet things and we can we can covet houses and we, we can covet other people's spouses. Like that's possible. And they're like, oh, that is covetousness. If that is our lifestyle, not if we have one thought one time like, oh, that'd be nice. And then catch ourselves, nah, I'm going to be content. Let me slide back into my land. That's not what Paul's getting at. What he's getting at here is this, this lifestyle of covetousness. I always need more. And, I, and I'm always looking at what other people have to gauge my life success. Nor drunkards, those who are unable to enjoy the fruit of God's earth without giving control of their bodies to that, right? Paul isn't saying here that having a drink of wine is a sin. Praise him. (laughs) He is saying here that if that is our Lord, if we have not overcome drunkenness as a lifestyle, we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That is fruit of the world rather than of the Spirit. If we are in Christ, He frees us from that. The 12-step programs are beneficial, but they're nothing compared to the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Nor revilers. Oh, now He's getting at those who have personal offense, uh, are personally offended again, right? Because if I'm personally offended and I react to that, what do I do? I, I end up reviling people. And y'all, even, even in the New Testament, when Peter is writing about um, Satan and Satan quarreling about the body of Moses, you remember that weird passage in the New Testament <laughs> in Peter's epistles? Even then he says that Michael the archangel didn't something like revile Satan, right? He left that to the Lord. Like, how much more does that apply to us? Like, we're not revilers, nor swindlers trying to swindle. Swindle. (laughs) It goes back to greedy and covetousness, thievery, right? Swindling others to improve our own reputation, our own image, right? This... That's not what the Holy Spirit works out in Christians. That's the way of death, not the way of life. That is evidence that we are not in Christ if that is the way we live. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because all of these, every single sin listed, gets back to one single simple idea. I want what I want and my desires are more important than anyone else's. And my identity is more important than the identity God has for me. And my, my preferences matter. And, and I care more about what people think of me than what they think of, of Christ. I am the one exalted here, not Christ. That's what all those sins get at. The sort of sordidity in life. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, verse 11. The the good, good news. Are you ready for this? Amen. Actually, we're out of time. Let's go. Our master. Verse 11. Amen. That, oh, amen to you, brother. That's, having time as your master is just as bad as having alcohol as your master. That's why my watch has no hands, all right? Such were. Talking to the believers in Corinth now, right? Such were some of you. 
But you were washed, past tense. Were washed. But you were, past tense, sanctified. Past tense, interesting. But you were, past tense, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What is the thing that liberated you from your offendedness? What is the thing that liberated you from your fornication, from your idolatry, from your adultery, from your effeminatory? Yeah. From your homosexuality, from your thievery, from your covetousness, from your drunkenness, from your reviling nature, from your swindling tendencies. What liberated you from that? The Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of God. That is... Christ is our great liberator. He does so through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Like we were all caught in sin. We were all living in sin. We are no better than anyone else who is currently living in sin and currently without the Spirit. The only distinguisher there is the Holy Spirit. And here we learn that not only are we free from the consequences of sin, not only are we free from the power sin has over our lives, but here, past tense, free from the presence of sin. Again, we're seeing Paul's eschatology come out because we say in popular theology, one day we will be free from the presence of sin. Brothers and sisters, I posit to you that if we are in Christ... There is a sense in which we are already free from the presence of sin. We no longer live in sin, which is why John could write in his epistles, if you sin, you are not in Christ, right? I mean, the statement is that strong. We are free from the presence of sin, and that is referring to a lifestyle. Now we will slip up because we still have carnal bodies, carnal brains, carnal Carnal physical hearts. Alright, I had to think about the way I needed to say that for a second. Here he says, You were washed by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. You were sanctified. Now sanctification, we, we use that word to refer to the process of being completed, right? Which we are not yet. But here Paul uses it in the past tense, meaning you were set apart, made holy before God. You were justified. Why? Because Christ is our justification. And once justified, we cannot be unjustified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God, there is a reason. Because the church bears such responsibility to judge. There is a reason when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, we see one of the qualifications we do for the office of an elder of the church. That qualification is not pugnacious. There's a reason we see that, because elders are in authority to judge the church body, and then the church is in authority to judge the whole world, right? And we need godly men who meet those qualifications leading the church, and I am proud to, proud to serve alongside Albert in that capacity. And toward the end of this month, I'm so happy to be presenting Steve as an elder of the church at Sunsites. And I believe he meets those qualifications. Y'all, Steve is the most unpugnacious person I know. Let me just, man. So we observe the fruit of our own lives. I can't, I don't know your heart. I can't judge you, right? 
All I can do is examine my own life and say, hey, do I live an offended life? If I do, I'm bearing fruit that is not consistent with repentance and I'm probably not in Christ. If you live an offended lifestyle, not just if you get offended once, right? But if you live an offended lifestyle, that comes from a mentality of entitlement. If you live an offended lifestyle, I have to tell you by the authority of Scripture that you're not in Christ and you need to repent and believe the gospel. Take the life that Christ offers. Be liberated from this offended lifestyle that the world so adamantly places on us. Repent and believe the gospel. Be saved. Be baptized. Become a member of a, of a local church for your continued sanctification so you, may, so you can continue to be completed until the day of Christ's bodily return to the earth and our blessed inheritance. Now, there's a, rel- a relevance here to something going on in our, in our own time, right? I don't know, there seems to be something about COVID-19. Y'all haven't heard about that, have you? (laughs) And a big controversy in the Christian community about wearing masks. (laughs) Getting the vaccine, okay? Look, if you are offended because somebody wears a mask, or if you are offended because somebody doesn't, pay attention, please, to chapter 6, 1 through 11. If you are offended because somebody chooses to get a vaccine or you are personally offended because somebody chooses not to get a vaccine take a good hard look at verses 1 through 11 again there is no room in the body of Christ for that kind of triviality period this is the church this isn't the world if you have so many pet peeves that everything just sort of makes you live a test life That was me. (laughs) Take a good hard look at verses 1 through 11. Anything else just offends you and you get so hot about it, please take a good hard look at verses 1 through 11. Consider whether or not you are in the faith because this is a salvation issue according to the New Testament. This is the... Is the fruit of repentance, the fruit of the Spirit, versus the fruit of, of the world, of the carnal nature. And when Christ comes in, He completely replaces that carnal nature. We are new creatures in Him.